0: Okay, it's 11 o'clock, so we'll get started. Welcome, everyone, to 11th Hour. Um, Again, please turn off or silence cell phones if you have them. And if there are any questions at the end of the presentation, I will carry around the mic, so just raise your hand. Um, And finally, and most importantly, today's presenter, Lon Otto, will be reading from his new collection of stories, A Man in Trouble, at Prairie Lights Bookstore next Wednesday at 8 p.m. So mark your calendars. Yesterday, Amy Hassinger told us that she views writing as a gift to the audience. Because the books she has loved, the ones that moved her and taught her to live in the world, were gifts to her. Of course, that's very beautiful and very true. But it begs the question, who is the audience? If you're trying to publish for the first time, are agents and editors the audience? If you're in a workshop, are your peers the audience? If a fictionalized version of your ex-boyfriend appears in your story, is he the audience? Today, Lon Otto will talk to us about audience and its implications. Lon earned his PhD from Indiana University and is professor emeritus at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he taught for 40 years. He recently published his third collection of stories, A Man in Trouble, which, as I mentioned, he will read from at Prairie Lights next Wednesday. His previous books include A Nest of Hooks, which won the Iowa School of Letters Award for Short Fiction, Cover Me, and the craft chapbook Grit, bringing physical reality into imaginative imaginative writing. His writing has appeared in many anthologies, including the Pushcart Prize, American Fiction, Flash Fiction and Flash Fiction Forward, and Not Normal, Illinois, as well as the craft text Best Words, Best Order. Please join me in welcoming Lon Otto.
1: No, I, can I put this down? Okay. First of all, I'd ask you to imagine that this is a beautiful Prezi or PowerPoint of the sort uh, done by my more clever colleagues earlier this earlier this week. Uh, I'm very old school. Uh, thank you for coming to this 11th hour, during which we'll be exploring some questions of audience, not as a marketing issue, particularly, but as a complication of the writing life. I'll be talking for about a half hour, maybe a little more. Then we'll have a conversation. I hope you'll ask questions, share your own experiences with the paradoxes and complications of audience. As a writer, certainly, but also as a reader, for it's important to remember that each of us plays both roles. No one writes who hasn't read. And few writers, maybe none who take the task seriously, by which I mean exuberantly, abandon the reading life for long. My main reference text for this talk is a children's book by Randall Jarrell called The Bat Poet which is, in my carefully measured judgment, the greatest book ever written about becoming a poet. And maybe the greatest about becoming any kind of creative writer, maybe any kind of artist. The best use of our time together this morning might in fact be for me to just read The Bat Poet aloud, first word to last, and then ask if there are any questions. But because The Bat Poet covers more topics, than just audience. It deals, for instance, with the question of remuneration for creative work, measured in crickets per poem. I'll just refer to it and quote some passages from time to time. Here's a three-sentence summary, which the students in my class will be uh, engaging in, engaging in tonight. One. A bat accidentally wakes up during the daytime, is dazzled by the rich and strange sunlit world he sees, and desperately wants his fellow bats to share the powerful experience. When the other bats refuse to stay awake with him in the daytime and reject his urging to at least listen to the mockingbird poet who imitates the sunlit world in his songs, but has too loud and deep of a voice for bat ears to appreciate, the bat poet resolves to create a poem of his own that will reproduce the experience of the daytime. As summer progresses into fall, the bat's career as a poet, including his encounters with different kinds of audience, has its ups and downs ending with his snuggling in once more with the other bats under the barn roof, forgetting the poem he intended to say to them and preparing to sleep through the winter. Writing for Ourselves The first time I thought about the peculiarities of audience occurred when I was on a panel with three other different kinds of writers, a journalist, a technical writer, and an academic literary scholar. Someone asked me, the fiction writer, for whom did I write? I answered that, like pretty much every writer. I had one or two trusted readers who gave me useful responses to drafts, and I hoped for a wide and diverse audience with publication, but that in the specific act of writing, the actual laying down of words on paper, sentence- by sentence, page by page. I really wrote for myself. Hour by hour, day by day, I wrote for myself. Wrote for my own ear, above all, but also for my other senses, including my sense of language and my sense of humor, trying always to keep myself engaged, interested, surprised, convinced. Then I added what seemed to me to be a ridiculously obvious truth, that this writing for myself had to be whirled away from the practice of, say, the technical writer. And the technical writer on the panel who wrote manuals for the supercomputer manufacturer Cray Research shook her head and said, no, that was pretty much what she did too. I try to make it clear to myself, she said. I listened to what I've written. And if it makes sense to me, I figure it will work for other readers too. She was, of course, bilingual, conversant in both highly technical language and the broader, less specialized language of the intended reader, so that writing for herself meant addressing a particular version of herself, a side of herself, the self that understood and spoke more or less common English. That's how it most often works, I think, inside active writing. We, first, we write, first of all, for ourselves, a version of ourselves, anyway. Several different writers I've talked with say that they write for an ideal version of themselves, a better self. I'm not sure exactly what that means. A little smarter than they think they are, maybe? A little more sophisticated, perhaps? A little more patient and kind, Poet Stanley Plumley has said that he writes for the person he was before he entered the study, his study. Many writers seem to have one or two specific readers in their heads for whom they write. Sometimes readers who aren't even around anymore in the world a former teacher, a smart friend, or loved one. And this, t- this too, I think is in a sense an ideal version of ourselves, our better self. Jonas Agee has told me that to write her first novel, Sweet Eyes, at first she tried to shut out all ideas or images of audiences from her mind as she wrote so she wouldn't censor or edit to please a particular person or group of people. She says that she finally had to imagine her narrator telling her story to a person who cared for her but wasn't a relative. Although she didn't say so, I think I know who that person was. I think that in that first draft, anyway, her narrator was telling the story to Jonas Agee. Somebody that will listen. Although we write for ourselves at some basic level, trying to please our own ears, incite our own interest, convince ourselves, we do want an audience outside ourselves, somebody who will listen to what we've written. Here's what happens when the bat poet finally writes his first poem. The bat went over and over his words till he could say them off by heart. That night he said them to the other bats, I've made the words like the mockingbirds, he told them, so you can tell what it's like in the daytime. The mockingbird is sort of the figure of the great famous poet. So you can tell what it's like in the daytime. Then he said to them in a deep voice, he couldn't help imitating the mockingbird, his words about the daytime. At dawn the sun shines like a million moons, and all the shadows are as bright as moonlight. The birds begin to sing with all their might, The world awakens and forgets the night. The black and gray turns green and gold and blue. The squirrels begin to... But when he got this far, the other bats couldn't keep quiet any longer. The sun hurts, said one. It hurts like getting something in your eyes. That's right, said another, and shadows are black. How can a shadow be bright? And another one said, what's green and gold and blue? When you say things like that, we don't know what you mean. And it's just not real, the first one said. When the sun rises, the world goes to sleep. But go on, said one of the others. We didn't mean to interrupt you. No, we're sorry we interrupted you, all the others said. Say us the rest. But when the bat tried to say them the rest, he couldn't remember a word. It was hard to say anything at all. But finally he said, I, I, tomorrow I'll say you the rest. He doesn't, though just encountered what we maybe fear most directly in terms of audience reaction. Impatience, disbelief, interruption, rejection, responses all the more painful when they come from our own community. We're writers. We want an audience. But what if the audience hates what we have to offer? I think of Jonas Agee trying at first to shut out all thoughts of an audience so she wouldn't censor or edit to please a particular person or group of people. So she could be true to her own voice at vision and ear, her narrator's voice or vision or ear. Audiences can shut us down, let's face it, however much we want to hear them and however kindly their intentions might be. The bat isn't shut down, however, not for long. He kept on making poems like the mockingbirds, only now he didn't say them to the bats. One night he saw a mother possum with all her little white baby possums holding tight to her, eating the fallen apples under the apple tree. One night an owl swooped down on him and came so close he'd have caught him if the bat hadn't flown into a hole in the old oak by the side of the house. And another time four squirrels spent the whole morning chasing each other up and down trees across the lawn and over the roof. He made up poems about them all. Sometimes the poem would make him think, it's like the Mockingbird. This time, it's really like the Mockingbird. But sometimes the poem would seem so bad to him that he'd get discouraged and stop in the middle, and by the next day, he'd have forgotten it. Even writing for ourselves, in other words, the audience can shut us down. This brings me to the section of the Bat Poet that's especially relevant to writers participating in classes and other kinds of workshops, the situation with most of us here this morning. I'm going to quote at some length because it is so relevant for us and so good. When the bat would wake up in the daytime and hang there looking out at the colors of the world, he would say the poems over to himself. He wanted to say them to the other bats, but then he would remember what happened when he'd said them before There was nobody for him to say the poems to. One day he thought, I could say them to the Mockingbird. It got to be a regular thought of his. It was a long time, though, before he really went to the Mockingbird. The Mockingbird had bad days when he would try to drive everything out of the yard, no matter what it was. He always had a peremptory, authoritative look, as if he were more alive than anything else and wanted everything else to know it. On his bad days, he'd dive on everything that came into the yard, on cats and dogs even, and strike at them with his little sharp beak and sharp claws. On his good day, he didn't pay so much attention to the world, but just sang. The day the bat went went to him, the mockingbird was perched on the highest branch of the big willow by the porch, singing with all his might. He was a clear gray with white bars across his wings that flashed when he flew. Every part of him had a clear, quick, decided look about it. He was standing on tiptoe, singing and singing and singing. Sometimes he'd spring up into the air. This time he was singing a song about mockingbirds. The bat fluttered to the nearest branch, hung upside down from it, and listened. Finally, when the mockingbird stopped for a moment, he said in his little high voice, It's beautiful, just beautiful. You like poetry? Asked the Mockingbird. You could tell from the way he said it. He was surprised. I love it, said the bat. I listen to you every night, every day, too. I, I, it's, the best, it's the last poem I've composed, said the Mockingbird. It's called To a Mockingbird. It's wonderful, the bat said. Wonderful. Of all the songs I ever heard you sing, it's the best. This pleased the Mockingbird. Mockingbirds love to be told that their last song is the best. I'll sing it for you again, the mockingbird offered. Oh, please do sing it again, said the bat. I'd love to hear it again. Just love to. Only when you've finished could I. But the mockingbird had already started. He not only sang it again, he made up new parts and sang them over and over and over. They were so beautiful that the bat forgot about his own poem and listened. When the mockingbird had finished, the bat thought, No, I just can't say him mine. Still, though... He said to the mockingbird it's wonderful to get to hear you i could listen to you forever it's a pleasure to sing to such a responsive audience said the mockingbird any time you'd like to hear it again just tell me the bat said could could yes said the mockingbird the bat went on in a shy voice do you suppose that i that i could the mockingbird said warmly that you could hear it again of course you can i'll be delighted and he sang it all over again. This time, it was the best of all. The bat told him so, and the mockingbird looked pleased, but modest. It was easy for him to look pleased, but hard for him to look modest. He was so full of himself. I've always wondered if Jarrell had some particular big ego poet in mind when he uh, drew the mockingbird. The bat asked him, Do you suppose a bat could make poems like yours? A bat, the mockingbird said. But then he went on politely, well, I don't see why not. He couldn't sing them, of course. He simply doesn't have the range. But that's no reason he couldn't make them up. Why? I suppose for bats, a bat's poem would be ideal. The bat said, sometimes when I wake in the daytime, I make up poems. Could I wonder whether I could say you one of my poems? A queer look came over the mockingbird's face, but he said cordially, I'd be delighted to hear one. Go ahead. Go right ahead. He settled himself on his branch with a listening expression. The bat said, a shadow is floating through the moonlight. Its wings don't make a sound. Its claws are long. Its beak is bright. Its eyes try all the corners of the night. It calls and calls. All the air swells and heaves and washes up and down like water. The ear that listens to the owl believes in death. The bat beneath the eaves. The mouse beside the stone are still as death. The owl's air washes them like water. The owl goes back and forth inside the night. The night holds its breath. When he'd finished his poem, the bat waited for the mockingbird to say something. He didn't know it, but he was holding his breath. Why, I like it, said the mockingbird. Technically, it's quite accomplished. The way you change the rhyme scheme is particularly effective. The bat said, it is. Oh, yes, yeah, said the mockingbird. And it was clever of you to have that last line two feet short. The bat said blankly, two feet short. It's two feet short, said the mockingbird, a little impatiently. The next to last line is iambic pentameter, and the last line is iambic trimeter. The bat looked so bewildered that the mockingbird said in a kind voice, an iambic foot has one weak syllable and one strong syllable. The weak one comes first. That last line of yours has six syllables, and the one before it has ten. When you shorten the last line like that, it gets the effect of the night holding its breath. I didn't know that, the bat said. I just made it like holding your breath. "'To be sure, to be sure,' said the Mockingbird. "'I enjoyed your poem very much. "'When you've made up some more, do come round and say me another.' "'The bat said he would and fluttered home to his rafter. "'Partly, he felt very good. "'The Mockingbird had liked his poem. "'And partly, he felt just terrible. "'He thought, why, I might as well have said it to the bats. "'What do I care how many feet it has?' The owl nearly kills me, and he says he likes the rhyme scheme. (laughs) He hung there upside down, thinking bitterly. After a while, he said to himself, the trouble isn't making poems. The trouble's finding somebody that will listen to them. Here, we have a very different kind of audience issue, one in which I'm deeply complicit as a teacher of creative writing. The first time I read The Bat Poet, which was after I'd been teaching for a few years, um, I felt a disconcerting shock of recognition in this episode. We know by intuition and training that most of us write most powerfully, most of the time, when we're drawing from powerful experience. Not scarring traumas necessarily, but experiences that leave marks on us and in us. Writing that deals with these powerful personal experiences is naturally what we often bring to writing workshops. But a writing workshop is not group therapy, at least not mainly that. In writing classes and other workshop settings, we properly focus most of the time not on the what of the experience, but on the how of the writing. We focus on writing techniques, ways of making the writing stronger. And that has to feel, it just has to feel, at times, profoundly, bitterly wrong. The owl nearly kills me, and he says he likes the rhyme scheme. The Mockingbird is not wrong to say what he did. He was approached as a professional writer, and he gave professional feedback. But I think it's important for us to be conscious, anyway, of this paradox within the writing workshop audience experience. What matters most to us as writers is something very different from what matters most to us as suffering, fragile human beings. I think it's proper, even essential, that in classes and other writing workshops we focus on technique, ways of accomplishing difficult things with words. But we should always remember that issues of technique, of meter and rhyme scheme, point of view and time-frame, braided narrative structure, free indirect style, might be overshadowed for the writer by the heart-pounding importance of the owl almost killing him. The Insider Audience The poem the Mockingbird responded to with such cool, technique-focused comments was about an owl. The bat figures that the owl would appreciate the poem, the poem's content, he intuited that one, he's intuited that one way to engage an audience is to write about it. But the owl is too dangerous to get close enough to to say it to him. Instead, the bat decides to write poems about more approachable animals, beginning with the chipmunk. He says to the chipmunk his poem about the owl is an example of what a poem is. When the poem was over, the chipmunk gave a big shiver and said, it's terrible, just terrible. Is there really something like that at night? The bat said, If it weren't for that hole in the oak, he'd have got me. Chipmunk said in a determined voice, I'm going to bed earlier. Sometimes when there's lots of nuts, I stay out till it's pretty dark. But believe me, I'm never going to again. The bat said, It's a pleasure to say a poem to, to such a responsive audience. Afterwards, when he's starting to work on the new poem, he keeps thinking about the satisfaction he'd gotten from that audience response. He didn't say any of that two-feet-short stuff, the bat thought triumphantly. He was scared. The chipmunk loves the poem that the bat writes about him, titled The Chipmunk's Day, not for the elegance of its form or for the vividness and originality of its members of its metaphors, the bat, poems, the bat, po- the bat poet po- poet's poems are, of course, Randall Jarrell poems, which means that they're wonderful. So not because of its metaphors, but because the poem is filled with things the chipmunk loves, holes and nuts and seeds and flattering descriptions of his stripes and fox-red fur. An insider often is often the most appreciative and responsive of all audiences, as long as you flatter them a little, and unless you get anything wrong, in which case they'll tear your throat out. The most irritating example of an insider audience for me over the years has been the group of two or three or four friends, usually male friends, who enroll together in a creative writing class and write only for each other laughing uproariously at the very mention of people and events that are utterly meaningless to the rest of the students and their teacher, or shake their heads and groan sympathetically over an allusion to some horror known, only o- known to no one other than themselves. If you're after a big response and aren't interested in anything other than a very narrow audience, you can't do better than to write to an insider audience, provided, of course, that you play by that audience's rules and aren't caught looking longingly at someone from outside the group. Interestingly, when the bat poet writes a poem about the mockingbird poet and gets up the courage to say it to him, the mockingbird responds entirely to its content, furiously defending himself against what he perceives it. Receives to be its critical portrayal of him and arguing the rightness of being exactly the way he is. When the bat poet asks him at the end, Do you like the way I rhymed the first lines of the stanzas and didn't rhyme the last two? The mockingbird answers shortly, I didn't notice. For most audiences, most of the time, the personal trumps the technical every time. The gatekeeper audience. Earlier in the book, when the Mockingbird was still in his aloof, famous poet-literary critic mode, as well as later when the Bat poet asked the Mockingbird's opinion of his rhyme scheme, the Bat's poet's extreme deference to the Mockingbird suggests not just the writing workshop audience, but also the narrower and more powerful entity I would like to call the gatekeeper audience. This is the audience, rarely found sitting together in the same room, of literary agents, editors, and reviewers who make up for their usual obscurity and relatively small numbers with the inordinate power over writers' careers and the fate of their books. We naturally want to be heard by this audience, all three groups. And they can be supportive and generous and wise. But when they start looming too large in our writing life, in the choices we make while laying down words on a screen or paper, the results can be unfortunate. Both agents and editors can be invaluable writing partners, offering smart and appropriate reading responses, but because of the power imbalance between them and at least less-than-famous writers, they can become impediments, standing between the writer and her or his own vision, blocking what her or his own ear is hearing, needs to hear. That's a risk I'm willing to run, we're maybe inclined to say. Hungry for a powerful advocate, a prestigious publisher. But the loss of control that can happen when an agent or editor starts demanding this or that change, it's rarely put as a demand, but that's what it is, before the book can go forward, I think it's a real loss sometimes. And there are books out there believe me, that are less original, less true, less powerful than they might have been except for the power of a gatekeeping audience concerned primarily with marketing. But they are out there, you might say. They're books, not manuscripts. And I'd maybe say, fair enough. Still, though, still, the intimate audience. My interest in the peculiarities of audience goes way back many years. But the specific trigger for writing this little talk was a moment this year when a friend of mine showed me some love poems addressed to someone for whom she had a complicated, powerful, and deeply problematic passion. She wanted me to say what I thought of them. And I reflexively tried. There were obvious beauties in the language, I could comment on informal devices that seemed very well chosen. But instead of offering those teacherly technical observations, I found myself uncharacteristically incapable of saying even lame and stupid things, much less anything useful. My friend waited. I stammered and stumbled around for a while before finally recognizing what the problem was perhaps because I knew her and something about the relationship, I knew that the poems really were written to this person, not just addressed to him, a common enough literary trope, but wholeheartedly and unambiguously written to him. No one else was in the audience. I could have honestly said very positive things about the language and form and my friend might have appreciated it. But the bat poet's bitter disappointment over the Mockingbird's coolly complimentary response to his technique rang in my ears. I really had nothing to say about what was at the heart of the poems, and to focus on the technical shell just seemed suddenly pointless. Writing for Strangers. I tried to explain. I tried to explain it, how what we do as literary teachers and editors and writing group members is to treat every piece as if it were written for strangers. Strangers who would encounter it wandering somewhere out in the world without the author hovering close by to explain and protect it. Even if we know the writer well, to give useful responses, we have to take on the posture of those strangers. Looking into the text for what engages, puzzles, draws in, and maybe pushes us out. Genuinely intimate writing, writing that's done for an audience of one, not as a literary trope addressed to, someone, addressed to someone, but with the intention of being overheard by many, doesn't really work for that process, though we can go through the motions and pretend that it's all the same. I told my friend the story about the bat poet and the Mockingbird and the Owl Poem, which she liked and understood and accepted as a reasonable explanation of my failure to give her critical feedback. And then she reminded me that I'd addressed the ironies of intimate poems and different kinds of audience in a short, short story in my first fiction collection. It's a story that's found a weirdly, a weirdly receptive audience over the years. You might have heard You might have heard it read, uh, though not by me, on NPR, a dark little Valentine's Day tradition. I'll end the monologue portion of this uh, 11th hour with that little story, and then we can have a conversation in which I hope that you'll share your own experiences and questions and ideas regarding the issue of audience. So it's called Love Poems. He has written her a St. Valentine's Day love poem. It is very beautiful. It expresses, embodies a passionate, genuine emotion. Emotion of a sort he hardly realized himself capable of. Tenderness that is like the tenderness of a better man. At the same time, the imagery is hard, diamond clear. The form intricate, yet unobtrusive. He says the poem out loud to himself over and over. He cannot believe it. It is so good. It's the best poem has ever written. He will mail it to her tonight. She will open it as soon as it arrives, cleverly timed on St. Valentine's Day. She will be floored, she will be blown away by its beauty and passion. She will put it away with his other letters, loving him for it, as she loves him for his other letters. She will not show it to anyone, for she is a private person, which is one of the qualities he loves in her After he has mailed the poem to her, written out in his interesting hand, he types up a copy for his own files. He decides to send a copy to one of the more prestigious literary magazines, one into which he has not yet been admitted. He hesitates about the dedication, which could lead to embarrassment, among other things, with his wife. In the end, he omits the dedication. In the end, he decides to give a copy also to his wife. In the end, he sends a copy also to a woman he knows in England, a poet who really understands his work. He writes out a copy for her, dedicated to her initials. It will reach her a few days late. She will think of him, thinking of her a few days before St. Valentine's Day. Okay. Thus endeth the monologue portion of, uh, of the talk. So now I want to hear from you, we want to hear from you, Um, experiences you've had, questions you might have, uh, experiences you might have had with uh, um, paradoxes and anomalies and uh, uh, pain, maybe, of audience issues, or the great satisfaction uh, sometimes.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Yes, I, I, I enjoyed the, the readings and the, your discussion about audiences. I have a question about, did you find new or t- different audiences between pre-publishing or post-publishing? Because, you know, when you write, you write for somebody or anybody in mind. And sure. then it, it turns out to be for someone else. Did you find... I, I'm sure you've found some experience like Could you share with us?
1: Sure. Well that that definitely happens. There's no question that that, um, that, that happens. I, I I can't say that it's ever felt all that different for me though as a as a writer. Um, in terms of uh, and again in terms of actually doing the writing, which is what which is my main concern. Um, in, this, in, in thinking about this. What happens with respect to audience when we actually sit there laying down words on, pa- on paper or on the screen? Um, what happens? How does audience uh, get in the way of that? How does the audience um, facilitate that? Um, what happens? And, and, and I don't think that it's really changed very much for me uh, uh, um, over the years. It I still, uh, I think, write for myself first of all. I have people I send work to. Um, I have the thought of a of a larger audience, and uh, uh, maybe because of the nature of what I do. I mean, I write fiction, and uh, it uh, not not genre fiction particularly, but a very loose, weird term, literary fiction. Um, it's not nearly as audience-specific, I think, as some other kinds of audience might be, where you would say, okay, now I'm really addressing a particular group of people, parents who have had this experience, owners of this kind of pet, um, practitioners of this kind of uh, activity. Um, It's too amorphous. Uh, The audience is too amorphous. And um, so I... Continue to listen to myself for for better or worse. You know, I, I think our I think our time is is up. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.